and welcome to another episode of Love and Citizenship. Thank you for tuning into our podcast for yet another week. And I hope you're well. I hope you're making the most out of this weird, it's kind of summer, but not really time of the year. I am truly delighted about today's episode and I'm really excited about the conversation that we're going to have. But before I introduce our guest, I want to give the biggest shout out to my Masi, which would be my mum's sister, for making this episode happen. I was on a call with her many months ago when I when I was still kind of finding guests and sending out emails for the season. And she suggested that she knew of someone that was working and kind of trying to shine a light on the state of mental health in the South Asian community in the States. And I asked her to put us in touch. We got on a call and here is a podcast that is happening about it. So Mrinal, my guest, is based out of the States and she wrote a book in the pandemic called Saya Unveiled, which highlights mental health issues within the South Asian community. And it consists of 11 true stories of second generation Indian, Pakistani and Bangladeshi immigrants on kind of how they sort of navigate mental health in the West. And it's rich. I'm slowly making my way through it between exams and dissertation readings, but I will link it down below. So do check it out. But just this conversation, it was so refreshing to to have because work like this isn't something that I'd come across before. But to see the depth of the conversation and the richness of the stories that she's told in this book are truly incredible. And so kind of having a conversation about her own experiences growing up in the States, but also kind of how that experience of writing this book over the pandemic, that had me very curious. And I'm eternally grateful that she decided to jump on the podcast. I will leave her links down below. I cannot encourage you any more significantly. I don't know where my grammar went there, but I genuinely, this comes with the strongest of recommendations on my part. Do check out her work. She's she's doing some incredible work and I genuinely cannot wait and I'd be so excited to see what she comes up with next. But here we are at the start of this episode. Again, there is a strong chance that I might mumble on forever. So without further wait, my guest for this week, Rinal Gokhale. Hi, everyone. Thank you very much for having me on today. I am an author based in Wisconsin in the U.S., and my first book, Saya Unveiled, South Asian Mental Health Spotlighted, shares 11 true stories of Pakistani, Indian, and Bangladeshi second-generation immigrants who navigate their own mental health journeys in the West. And the goal in my writing the book is to spread awareness and education on mental health in between South Asian generations. I will get into, I suppose, the book, I think, later on in the podcast, but I'm very curious, I suppose, and to kind of get us started to maybe talk a bit about your own journey, kind of growing up, the structure of your family, I suppose, and kind of how that informed your idea of yourself. So starting from the beginning, I'm from Michigan and my parents are from Maharashtra in India. They immigrated here after they married. They got advanced degrees here and they started a family and both of them are engineers. And I lived in Michigan for four years of my life. And then ever since I've lived in Wisconsin, I live in Milwaukee, which is the most segregated city in our, in our country. And I'll say that coming from two hardworking immigrant parents with advanced degrees, I grew up with entitlement, but I also grew up with a lot of pressure from an academic standpoint, because mm -hmm. in their passing on their hardcore work ethic to me, they also, I think, pushed very high academic standards on me. And 
growing up in the most segregated city in Milwaukee, I was one of maybe less than five Indian children or South Asian children in my school system all the way from when I was little until I graduated high school. Mm-hmm. And growing up, I think that I I was like a typical, I guess, Indian American child that was struggling to with living with the South Asian culture inside the household, then American culture outside the household, wanting to just be American at first, and then in er, emerging adulthood, wanting to embrace both parts of my identity. Okay, that there's a lot to unpack there. Obviously, the academic side of it, I think I suppose I can just relate to a bit because obviously my own parents are Indian as well. So there was always this academic pressure kind of growing up. But I'm very curious because I have the experience of now being, I suppose, the first generation trying to set my roots in a foreign land. What was it like for you kind of growing up in the States, trying to kind of fit in all these two, I would almost assume, like clashing ideologies that you had to navigate? What what was that like? Um, well, I'm trying to say, let me think of a way to say this without sounding like just another ABCD. Um, I think that not growing up around a lot of Indian children in my school system did have an effect on me in that, you know, I kind of wanted that and I think it would have benefited me. But at the same time, I think that, so basically I was raised with Indian ideals, such as a hardcore work ethic, being pushed to be a straight A student and this wasn't happening. And then this would cause clashes between my family and I. So I had both academic and social emotional learning difficulties growing up for which Mm -hmm. I never got any professional help for until I was an adult and sought it out myself for one. So even though there was no Indian kids at my school necessarily, my family, we at least lived by a Hindu temple Mm -hmm. that was 30 minutes away from us where my family would try to connect with other Indians and try to be friends with them. And we would all get to know each other and Within that circle, I would pick up on notions kind of of academic competition in a sense. And I think at an early age, I got it drilled into my head, even if it's indirectly, that public perceptions, absolutely everything. Yeah. (laughs) And which in my book, the whole what will people think and say notion gets explored a lot, too. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is one thing that caused me to feel very frustrated from from a cultural standpoint and kind of made me further want to reject it growing up. And then I think that once I became a college girl and I moved to the city as opposed to the suburb and I was, and I had experienced a culture shock and I made friends of so many different backgrounds, including other South Asian friends. Then I finally got to, it kind of got through my head that You don't have to choose one culture over the other. You can pick and choose which aspects you like and dislike and kind Mm. of decide for yourself what being an Indian American means to you as opposed to what it means to others. So what does being an Indian American mean for you? I would say that if I had to sum it up, I would go back to what I just said earlier about Mm. being able to, to, I guess, understanding your roots and where you come from as where as as well as ideals and norms in the culture, you may or may not like all of them, but at least understanding them. Mm -hmm. And then at that point, choosing which ones that you actually want to implement in your own life. Yeah, I think so much of growing up is kind of taking a stock of everything you were handed down as a kid, and then just saying, this is what I'm willing to take forward with me. This is what I'm just like, 
not going to add to the suitcase that I'm packing. But which obviously is very different when there is a very strong community. Uh, I think and communal but cultural, like Indian communities tend to have like very strong values that are ingrained in you as a kid. And sometimes to your own detriment, like I remember kind of growing up and thinking if I didn't get good grades in my exams, my life was over. That that I think the love of my parents was very strictly correlated to the 90s that I would be getting in my report card. Right. And I will add that I have some things I've noticed in my book were that a lot of people who told their stories would say that they started off doing what their parents asked them. And then once they reach a certain age, then they reach that point of, okay, now the things mom and dad or Masi or G.R. Elzabai taught me about the world don't necessarily completely make sense. And I have to form that worldview of my own. I think where I differ is growing up that my attitude from day one was if something doesn't make sense, why do it? And of course, that caused a lot of clashes with myself and my elders. I I can imagine that's uh, I because I definitely had a whole I I am going to say at least took me 20 years of living to get to a place where I could say, you know what, this doesn't make sense to me or start basically maybe looking beyond my bringing or the, the, the script that I was handed. But you from day one kind of having had that this doesn't make sense to me, therefore, I'm not going to do it. Tell me a bit more about that. Tell me a bit more what it was like. I would say that, so we we were just discussing academic pressure. So basically, like I said, my parents have advanced degrees, which means that financially speaking, we were quite well off. We lived in an upper class neighborhood. They could afford to pay for my college education. And I think that a so there was my personality being that way. And then there was also the fact that I grew up in entitlement. Mm-hmm. So that made it, I think, difficult for my parents to teach. Like, I didn't understand the point of regurgitating information just to get a letter grade in return. And to a degree, I still don't. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I think that that made it hard for them to really motivate me and teach me the importance of education and stuff growing up. And that's where clashes started about how they wanted me to be a straight A student, but that wasn't really happening. And I think it made me wonder, you know, why can't I score that way in the subject that I act subjects that I actually enjoy rather than the ones I don't, which happen to be math and science and they're engineers. I'm I'm very curious. What was the internal struggle through that process of obviously there's a clash that's happening with the family on a lot of these fronts, but what's what's happening within? I would say that being that I'm a person who acted in more than I acted out, I would Mm -hmm. say that this academic pressure from day one did take a knock at my self-esteem early. And on top of academic struggles, I had social emotional learning struggles too. So for example, I was painfully shy and didn't have a lot of friends. And on top of that, had difficulties with things like social reciprocity. Mm -hmm. And so, like I said, the self-esteem thing came up and I think that I almost did develop some kind of hypervigilance and stuff at a young age too, as a result of all that. And I think that I started questioning from a young age, kind of the things that I was taught and why it was that way. And I think in adolescence, it kind of reached that boiling point where I wanted to reject all of it altogether. And I dreamt of doing just that. Okay. So... What what were some of these things that you were questioning, if you don't mind me asking? 
I would say the academic portion we talked about. So I like the liberal arts. I liked writing and reading, foreign language, some of my favorite subjects. The reason being because I think my strength is verbal comprehension as well as memorization of facts. So I would say math and science I struggled with because science is a bit more abstract and because math requires a high degree of nonverbal comprehension and visualization skills. So I think I feel as though, you know, when it came to the things I liked and I was good at, I felt like I wasn't really appreciated for it. And I think that it made me one. I those were the things I could see myself doing something with when I grew up. But my family tried to drill it in my head that no, those things are just hobbies. So that was something that, you know, I would ask, but I would, I just could not understand, you know, what's wrong with choosing one a career in that field versus in STEM. Yeah. Like I would wonder that from a young age, for example. And then growing up, then there was things such as, you know, having not being allowed to stay out late at night, party, dating stuff. That's something that also further caused clashes and stuff and made me want to reject all things Indian, so to speak. I'll also add to that these ideals that they would try to drill into our heads as kids growing up that almost like elders can do no wrong. And I would start to observe that talking back to parents was less acceptable or less tolerated in the Indian households I knew as opposed to the American households. Mm -hmm. It's something that doesn't make sense to me at all of like, how is someone's age representative of the validity of their opinion it it bothers me to this day because i i i would say my parents maybe not to that extent but i would definitely know of like distant cousins well why distant cousins cousins aunts friends of friends their parents that that would hold very like we're older than you i have 30 years on you your opinion may be factually correct and makes some sense but because i'm older this is more valid. Right. And I will say that once I started to get older, I think that the family members, I would say closest to me, since they knew what I was like, things like respectfully disagreeing became more acceptable. But I do know that to some uh, Indian families and extended family members, even that's a scandal. Oh yeah, 100%. Talking back, especially when you know they're wrong and they know they're wrong, but because they're old, they have to be right. That's a melting pot of drama waiting to happen. And then I'll also add branching off of that in college, I would say that, you know, in my emerging adulthood, so to speak, I would pick up on notions that, you know, of the obedience thing, you know, in Mm. Western cultures, the ideal is when you're grown, you do what you want. You don't have to justify why you do what you want. That's the perk of being grown. Whereas the obligations to be this good Indian child carry on even into adulthood. And that does have to do, I think, with ideas that your parents did X, Y, Z for you. They did more for you than a non-immigrant parent would. Therefore, you continue to owe them more. And I think that along with that comes things like codependence. Yeah, 100%. I'm, I'm very curious because I do agree. I think there's the element of codependence that is so, like degrees may be different and they vary between different families. But I think there is a strong like foundation of this is what we had to go through to get you to where you are. What was that like within your own family, if you don't mind me asking? Well, I had my college paid for and I know that that's not something a lot of parents yeah. in the world can do. 
And um, even if my own parents would never say things, say things to me directly, Mm -hmm. I would see it mimicked in other extended family members that my parents did X, Y, Z for me. Therefore, I'm not going to, I don't know, date or marry someone they don't approve of or some, or tell them about my double life outside of the household type of thing. And then that made me question, do I have those same obligations? And at the end of the day, what it comes down to is I could survey a hundred, they see people if they agree with that mindset and I'm going to come back to the drawing board. Yeah. Oh, you're so on, so on point with that one. I, I, I'm, I'm wondering now, so we've got a sense of kind of you in your teens kind of journeying through to college. Where, where was the point where you started really growing into yourself? Where obviously, because I, I'm, I'm, I know for a fact that for me, for some period of my life, there was a dual identity, sort of the identity of me being the good son to my parents, living at home, trying to essentially make my decisions based off how they would feel about me. So what, what was your own, I suppose, journey? What, what what was the point in your life where you started becoming more of who you are? I would say that the start was that when I moved out and when I went to college, mm-hmm. because I would say that that's when I got to, you know, be on my own and kind of do the things that I felt like I was being held back from. That's mm-hmm. number one. Yeah. And then therapy came, my therapy journey started then too. Okay. I used my college's psychology clinic to do just that. And what I went for was social anxiety Mm -hmm. and they showed measurable results from that. And then five years later, I went to therapy again because I felt as though even though my social skills improved, I was struggling in the working world. And then I improved even further. And then when I was with that therapist, which I'll say, even though she was a white American therapist, I had the patience to educate her on cultural dynamics. That's when we started to explore some of the things I told you about just earlier on and got to a point where I could feel semi more secure about those sorts of things. Yeah, absolutely. And so what was it like going into therapy for the first time? Well, I stumbled into it. Um, I think that, you know, when I was a high schooler, so as I mentioned, those academic and social emotional learning difficulties, I always could sense that something was like off or that needed diagnosing, I think, but I didn't think that I would ever get the chance to go because no one suggested it to me. And I guess growing up as a kid, I thought therapy is first those who are suffering severely, so to speak. And I didn't get the sense that my family would take me if I asked them to. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't even in my head, but one day in college, I was walking around the student union, a guy at a table came, like saw me and said, do you want to take a free depression screening? And I said, sure. And he was like, okay, so this thing shows you have a lot of high markers and anxiety. Would you like to work with one of our student clinicians for just $5 a session? And I said yes to this. Okay. And then we worked together for about a year doing exposure therapy. Okay. I want to put in a pin in there and kind of rewind just a bit because I have many questions coming up for me. But I suppose the the big one, which kind of does help lay the foundation of like a lot of what the rest of the conversation might be. What were the, I suppose, attitudes or ideas towards mental health within your immediate social circles and say family kind of growing up? Um, I would say that it wasn't heavily talked about. Okay. I would say that 
when I, so let me just say that when it comes to my South Asian friends and acquaintances, most of them went when they were adults or late teens, such as myself, whereas most of my white American acquaintances went when they were teenagers and younger because they were either forced to go by their family or the court system or the school staff or because they and their family decided that it, that they should have gone. I think that being that I was a 90s, I'm a 90s baby, I think that in school systems, my academic difficulties were not things that I saw anyone for professionally because in that time, I think that school staff tend to look at things like you're either cognitively disabled or you've got ADHD or you just need to try a little harder in a sense. And so my ish, my academic learning difficulties in school were things that like I would constantly miss instructions, not follow directions, be messy and disorganized. I couldn't do homework unless my parents sat in the same room with me, making sure it got done. Mm-hmm. I would end up in summer school for my week subjects, math or science, unless my parents worked one on one with me, making sure I did all my homework, mm-hmm. sitting with me to study for tests since those were their strong subjects. Yeah. So maybe if they didn't do those things, I would have failed and things would have worked out differently. But I think that, yeah, they put up with a lot for not seeking any help outside of the household. But they did. It, I do think that the attitude was that it was me who was lacking motivation, had to trap. So now you're, you're in college. Yeah. Um, so, so what was that like, I suppose, going from a place of like where you weren't I suppose, given any mental health support to now finally having mental health support for the first time? I would say in the first intake session, I still remember that it felt very good to let things out in a non-judgmental space Mm -hmm. and not just be told that it's fine, you got this, you should Mm -hmm. just do a little bit of that like friend would, which I'll say that therapy works for me because general suggestions do not. And I think that it was nice also once I started working with the therapist to really get to the root of why my social anxiety exists and then also be given very explicit instructions and activities to do and very specific ways of measuring my progress to see whether it was working or not throughout the year we worked together. And uh, have you you continued with therapies? And I suppose, how have you found it in that time, I suppose, from, say, starting college? to where you're at now. So who I worked with then wasn't a quote unquote real therapist because she was in, she was a graduate student getting her degree in psychology, but she was supervised by a professor. So Mm -hmm. anyways, I think when I first came in, my markers for social anxiety disorder were considered severe, but then by the time we ended our work together, they were mild to moderate. Okay. So I think that when it came to friendships and stuff like that, that helped me immensely. But then after college, I struggled in the working world a little bit due to things like those academic difficulties I mentioned kind of carried on over into the working world. Mm -hmm. And some of my social struggles did too. And then I went back when I was in my mid twenties and then that helped me even further. And then that same therapist was the one that suggested I try antidepressant medication. So Mm -hmm. That was the first time I experienced like the synergy between balancing the chemicals in your brain and also doing the work in therapy. I have so many questions now coming up for me. One one of the things I suppose I'm curious about, and this would tie in with obviously the book, kind of how that came about. But I'm I'm curious, having had your own experiences with mental health and getting that support 
do you, do you reckon the attitudes surrounding mental health within our communities has changed over the last couple of years? Yes. So I think that around the same time I wrote the book, which was this past May, is when I realized that there's so much more talk being done about mental health in our own diaspora. And I discovered this through social media and my own research. And I think that things like COVID is, is what really spearheaded it to really take off a lot. And so um, this, this is where I suppose it'd be interesting to talk about the book. Tell us a bit about the book, what it is. I know you, you mentioned a bit in the introduction to yourself there. Tell us a bit about the book and I suppose what inspired you to write it as well? So one thing I forgot to mention is that I'm a former reporter and in Milwaukee, I've written for two minority owned publications, one black, one Hispanic. And throughout that, I have covered mental health awareness month events for the black and Hispanic community, both of which have discussed stigma around mental health. And that made me wonder why isn't there discussion in Asian communities around stigma? And then around quarantine, I took a free memoir writing class Mm -hmm. and I learned about self-publishing and I made a list of things that I want to write a book about. And then that one just seemed like the best, I guess, the most feasible. And it was obviously one that connects to me emotionally, as well as would play up on my journalism background. Okay. And so the the process of writing the book, I can imagine interviewing people from, I mean, it's a diverse selection of people to interview about their own experiences around mental health. What was that like, hearing their stories and then writing about it? I would say that... I want, I was approaching it kind of like I do in the journalism world in the sense that when I'm at a current I'm and at an event, I just go up to people, say, Hey, I'm hi, I'm a reporter, can I ask you some questions and be done with it? Mm-hmm. I think this was a lot more personal and I kind of had to learn through experience and trial and error how to kind of approach these topics in a more sensitive manner and kind of while also being a little bit, you know, balancing being neutral, but also helping the person I'm speaking to connect to me a little better. So they feel comfortable opening up. So what was the process of interviewing people? How did you approach people? How did the interviews happen? Did it happen in one go? Did it happen over an extended period? I did a search on South Asian mental health organizations and found several. I would tell them what I'm doing and say, do you have any volunteers, any workers, board members, whatever that Mm -hmm. you think would be interested? And they would put out submission calls and say that if you want, you can change your name to protect your privacy if you want. And then if people contacted me, I'd say, here, fill out this form with just basic information about yourself. And then I would call them back if I was interested. And I would give them the choice, you know, do you want to start out this by submitting me written answers to questions I got and then doing a verbal one or doing a verbal one right away? So I did at least one verbal interview with everyone. Sometimes I would follow up with the second if I needed more information. And so you started with this idea and then you had the opportunity to kind of interview these people during probably the worst global healthcare crisis that we've been through as a species in recent memory. What was it like doing this in the pandemic? And kind of what did it bring out for you in terms of the comparison or contrast to your own experiences? I think I wouldn't have been able to do this in four months if it weren't for the pandemic, Mm -hmm. because I was working from home until vaccines came out. Mm -hmm. So if I come home physically from a long day of work, then I may be too tired to write or something. Whereas if I'm already in the house and I'm not going to be able to socialize much, that kind of gives me the only thing to do is write. 
So logistically, the pandemic helped me. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, when I would talk to people, though, obviously mental health is affecting people on when it came to the pandemic. So yeah. there were people that would tell me their stories about how the pandemic did impact them. Mm-hmm. And what was it like kind of hearing these stories and kind of reflecting on your own, I suppose, experiences as a person and as somebody who'd had like a journey of their own when it comes to mental health? So I would say that I found similarities in terms of things like the stigma experienced mm-hmm. in, in a generational standpoint. So it, I think it made me feel less alone and more heard and more empowered as a result, even if my exact experience and story wasn't the same as everyone. And that's one thing that will be found in the book is that all the stories have similarities, but still differences in terms of things like diagnoses and stuff like that mm-hmm. to still be unique. Okay. Um, could, could you talk about some of the similarities that I suppose you found or even found within yourself when kind of seeing these stories? So some common themes I could discuss that I found in the book are the fact that Things like the stigma and shame that comes from older generations when it comes to mental health. So families not taking people's mental health seriously until it gets severe. Mm -hmm. The people, individuals themselves not acting to seek help unless it gets severe. Mm -hmm. Things like the mind-body connection when it comes to mental health, where if you're not, if you're stressed out and not doing your best mentally, then it starts to manifest in physical health ways when you don't take care of it. Mm -hmm. Things like those who said that they had parents who came to the West at younger ages were a bit easier to educate about their mental health journeys than those whose parents came as grown-ups. And so I know we talked briefly about kind of the changing attitudes in and around mental health within, I suppose, the Indian diaspora. What do you think we need more of? I would say the biggest thing is more uh, South Asian counselors, therapists, Mm -hmm. maybe psychiatrists. The reason being because another thing that I forgot to mention is that there was quite an emphasis about people feeling strongly about seeking a therapist who understands their background. So if you work with a therapist of South Asia, so any therapist and client relationship takes up time to build. But when the person comes from a different culture, that kind of takes even longer time to bridge a gap on. Whereas if you have a therapist that comes from the same religious background as you or the same racial background as you, you don't have to do as much explaining and justifying on why your family has the attitudes they have or do the things they do or raise you how they raised you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I think that having more South Asian therapists out there, both first and second generation will help people help our community feel more comfortable to seek help and also educating them on confidentiality laws too. So they understand that their cases will not be talked about, I think is a big key. And then my hope with this book is to promote intergenerational healing. So I thought that only those in the younger generations would be interested in reading my book, but I'm also finding that, you know, several family members and Indian friends and acquaintances of ours that are in my parents' age and older Mm-hmm. took interest in it too and did say you know wow i never knew what types of pressures you know kids in your generation endure to fit in and this and that so yeah it's all it's all about getting the conversation started and i think what you've done in writing that book is given a lot of people opportunity 
to have a conversation that normally either they wouldn't have the tools to start or even know where to start. And I think that's so significant and that's so incredible. Kind of kind of to wrap things up and just I'm 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 curious and I suppose these are going to be my last two questions. If you could you have a time machine now, if you could go back to your nine year old self uh, and you get to just see that nine year old self, what what would you say? Nine years old. Um yeah. third grade. Um I guess I would tell myself that that there's gonna come a day where I'm going to have answers to my questions on why I am the way I am and why I struggle with things I struggle with, but also why I have the strengths that I have. Mm-hmm. And that I guess even if some of the things that I'm being taught now may not make any sense, some of them will and some of them still may not when I grow older mm-hmm. and that I should try to keep a more open mind to that. Okay. And my last question then is, what is your hope for yourself? I'm going to say five years from now. Where do you want to be? What kind? I, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm expecting another couple of books. Uh, no pressure. But what, what is your hope for yourself, I suppose, five years in the future, if you were to meet yourself five years in the future? My hope is, you know, yes, I do want to write another book. I don't know when that'll be, being that mm-hmm. this is a le- less than a year old. The topic is going to be probably men's mental health, which by the way, there's nine female stories and two male stories in my book. My original intention was to feature half males and half females, but more females were interested than males, which that is a whole other topic that there needs to be more research on, I think. And so hopefully writing a book about men's mental health and continuing to really take the role that I have and evolve it in terms of bringing to light taboo subjects in our diaspora and making them not so taboo anymore, whether that be through book writing or things like public speaking, like I'm doing with you now. Yeah. I, I am so, so grateful that we connected, but I'm really, I do really appreciate you kind of coming on because I have never really had the opportunity up until I started the podcast to have the conversations about you know, topics such as mental health. But yeah, I'm I'm very curious. I'm very curious what you get to do with that book. And I am I'm excited whenever that happens and when that comes out. But any last parting words before we wrap up the podcast for anybody listening in? Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed discussing, you know, what I discussed with you. And for anyone listening on here, I just hope you know to never disregard your mental health, no matter who you are, where you come from, what you've been taught or how much worse someone has it in comparison to you, which is the message I hope people will take from the book. Thank you again for coming on to the episode and uh, really best of luck for everything that the future holds for you. Thank you for listening to this episode. We have another episode out next week on the Wednesday and if you like what we do and the work that we're putting out, do consider joining our Patreon. Till then, this has been Love and Citizenship, and I will catch you in the next one.